Welcome. Today is Wednesday, September 18th, 2019, and I am your host, Susan Mulder. You know, one of the things I love about doing Poet Kind is the fact that I get to talk with some incredible creatives. And today's guest is no exception. It was such an honor to be introduced to Ayaz Parani, and I am thrilled that I get to introduce him to you. Ayaz is a poet and has just released his second book, Kabir's Jacket Has a Thousand Pockets, and I have to say I really loved this book. Ayaz, welcome. I'm so happy to have you here on Poet Kind. Well, thank you for inviting me. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm an admirer. Thank you. You're very kind. Uh, I found out about you through a mutual friend, and she told me about your book, now, I want to say it right. Kabir's jacket has a thousand pockets. That's right, yeah. Yeah, and Kabir's jacket. Yeah, and that is your second book. Mm-hmm. But I was so excited to read through your work that I couldn't wait to talk to you. So uh, it's a delight to, to sit down. Uh, for my listeners, I get to be face to face, but everybody else just has to listen to his chat. But um, I'd like to start with the basics. Tell me a little bit about yourself, how you came to poetry, where you come from. Sure. Well, you know, that's a a thousand year speech, but (laughs) I I could try, you know, um, the most obvious facts are that I was born in Tanzania in a little town called Musoma, which is on um, the edge of Lake Victoria. And of course, when I was born, um, those countries were colonies of uh, European powers. In the case of um, Kenya, Tanzania, Zimbabwe, Uganda, you know, um, they had all experienced revolutions and, um, sorry, colonization and independence. And um, in the 70s, my family decided to, I guess, flee in a way. And we went to England and from there to Canada. And uh, basically, I grew up in Kitchener, Ontario. Kitchener, Waterloo, Ontario. And uh, basically, I'm a Canadian. I spent most of my childhood and youth there. I started university in Toronto. And since then, I've been living in the United States. I've lived in Texas, where I... I taught school. Uh, I'm a teacher. Uh, I taught school, and I've lived in California here for about 15 years in Monterey. In Monterey, you live in a very beautiful yeah country. Yeah, it's in fact so beautiful that it's hardly can enter my poetry. You know, it's one of those things that I just can't hardly bring myself to write about just yet. Sure, sure. that makes sense. Yeah, I guess I've been. Uh, writing most of my life and I always thought of myself perhaps as being a poet or wanting to um, to, to um, be a writer since I was a kid and uh, probably that has to do with my um, my ancestry and my culture so um, I come from a culture that still has a living oral tradition in the form of Ginans, and so that these are 
songs or uh, recitations of poems and uh, people memorize them they're still recited out loud in performances um, you sing them in your home you know um, so um, i grew up in that tradition where it seemed very obvious that uh, you could be a poet or you could be a writer of that kind um, and then uh, <clears throat> growing up also in canada i encountered the british tradition of poetry and the canadian tradition as well and so that's how i got to where i am now i suppose i'm basically a teacher and a poet yeah but you just have this um global lifeblood in you that you bring so much into your writing um, i'm glad you touched on was it ginan is that right ginans that's right because yeah, in your epilogue you mentioned that you know, you thanked your mother for, for yes. those, and also your grandmother for reading books. Yes. You could get at them. And I just think that's really, that's a delightful touchstone for knowing, you know, just how important it is in your life. Yeah. I would agree. Um, if I may emphasize again, the fact that there were also, it's also a oral tradition. So even though there were books around and, that was very important to me. I could read those as well as I could read um, the British poets, you know, the classics, as the, the white classics. I could read both on paper, but there was one that I could also experience just by listening, and that was my ancestors' tradition. So uh, I feel like it, um, I don't know, it um, gives me something at least, you know, to cling to in my own work. Yeah, well, I think that comes through in your work, and I, I took a couple notes down here. One of your poems in particular really is multi-sensory, and how it's oh. described, and I want to say it's the birds. It's, oh, the bird, uh, yeah. I'm correct. It, and I'm, it I'm comes in parts. It comes through the pages real quick, but That's right. you know, it emphasizes, um, you know, a line break, and then there's clapping, and... To me, that I read that one many times because of the visual and um, the multi-sensory experience of it was really wonderful, and that you know that demonstrates the connection you're talking about between mm -hmm. the reading and the and the hearing, which were different. Yes, uh, I wouldn't want to put too fine a point on it, or or. Um make it too political or anything like that, but there certainly is a, a, an important um, difference between the emphasis on the written word in the West and the um, emphasis on oral speech, I think, in the East. Um, it's very common, for example, in Pakistan and in India and in East Africa, when you go to people's homes, for people to just naturally re recite a poem, mm. uh, one or two lines, just a couplet even, and and then people will, on the spot, tell you whether it's good or not. Oh, how wonderful. You know, they'll, they'll make a sound like va or, or some other sound to let you know that that was good. Um, and then it might even go around the room so that by the end of the evening, everyone has offered a couplet or 
or half the room has offered a couplet. Some better than others, some more comical, you know, rather than serious. Um, so uh, I just, you know, I think that is something that I'm trying to go for, um, even though I, of course, I'm working on the written page. Yeah. Well, uh, what, a, what a beautiful situation mm. you just described. And what a, um, there's an intimacy. And I think with the oral tradition, there would, you know, there's such disconnect between the page and the reader. And then the, an additional disconnect between the writer because mm -hmm. I might read something entirely different. You know, I, I bring my, mm -hmm. my complete ethos to it, and I might not interpret it or discover it the same way the writer intended. Yeah. So that, that oral tradition. Yeah. Now, now, of course, that um, disconnect that you're talking about is... Um, of course, one of the pleasures of reading books where you don't meet the author or know anything about the author also because it creates, like, you have to do a lot of work yourself. Mm -hmm. And um, it creates a kind of uh, special relationship between you and the book and the book and the author. And, of course, in the West, I think we might fetishize that a little bit mm -hmm. and kind of romanticize that um, disconnect and the pleasure of the disconnect. Mm -hmm. But um, in the oral tradition, you like you, you know, as you were saying, you're right there. Often the poet is right there, and you actually have to say whether you liked it or not at the moment, you know. Yeah. The other thing I would add to that is that in the um, emphasis on the written word, it also has a lot to do with um, a bit of selfishness uh, or, co or proprietariness. Uh, these are my words, they're on the page. I've copyrighted them. I'm, I'm the one who's produced them. It's a bit, uh, I don't know what the word is. On the other hand, in oral traditions, um, it's quite common and expected that you would recite a line or two from someone else. It's not quite as selfish. It would be impossible not to um, quote Kabir that evening, or Ghalib, or Hafiz, yeah. or Rumi, or it would just, uh, they're quoting each other. Um, just as an example, one of the most famous translations of Kabir are the hundred poems of Kabir by Rabindranath Tagore, okay. a kind of turn of the century poet, uh, translated Kabir. As it turns out, I think almost all of those poems, none of those poems are actually Kabir. Mm -hmm. Scholarship has shown that none of them are authentically Kabir. But of course, it doesn't matter. That's part of the oral tradition is that everyone is reciting other people's works. And it's, it's perfectly reasonable to do that. It's expected to do that. You're honoring them. Yeah. But I think it would be a little strained and difficult to try to do that in Western settings where you go to a reading and someone comes up on the podium and they read their work. You might read it at home, but it would be both um, rude and, and um, unexpected to, to, to borrow. That's not how it is elsewhere. Yeah. You're supposed to borrow. 
it's a communal experience. It is. As opposed to one of self-ownership. Yes. Now, both are important, of course. I'm not trying to say one is better than the other. Both have been fetishized in their own communities and both have their problems. But I'm, you can clearly see that there are, there are beauties in both. Yeah. And I feel like I'm trying to access both of those worlds. Well, I, I think in some of these writings, um, I don't know, I was, I was very transported. And because you'd introduced other elements to it, there it was a layer of curiosity that I had in your writing that I hadn't experienced maybe in reading somebody else's. Because then I would, I would recognize that you maybe use a different line somewhere else. And I'd be yes. flipping back through, trying to find, okay, what does he say there? And going back and forth. Um, and I appreciated that. Um, often the experience of a book um, is, okay, I've read that. And I've read that. I've, di I've, I've taken it in. I've eaten it. Digested it. But I don't necessarily... Um, relate within it so it was mm. fun to have a different kind of experience mm. so you know i'm not sure whether i totally like um i'm on the same page I, that i've figured out what you mean by that but i i do i do think that um you know one of the things uh, that we thought about uh, in editing the book and preparing it was um how much explanations i needed to offer for untranslated lines or for references that might be outside of an American audience's, um, you know, um, uh, landscape, you know, things, whether they're geographic or the name Nakalunki or, um, so how much to include in all of that so that people could be, could get as much out of it as possible, but then also feeling that, um, the reader should do a certain amount of work on their own, you know, and and that some of the mystery would be beneficial. Mm -hmm. And in the end, not knowing all of the details might actually um, uh, uh, be useful for the reader. I think it enhanced my experience of the mm -hmm. because I was forced to, I had to work for it. Yeah. And, the other thing I thought you might have been suggesting was that you noticed that, um, it's kind of embarrassing actually, but you might have noticed that, um, you know, I repeat myself in the book and I borrow my own lines That's in not different parts of the book. <laughs> well, did, yeah, although that, if I may say in, um, in um, to be totally clear about it is that, you know, that kind of stuff is, you know, it, I was asked to remove that kind of stuff. And the, the idea is that um, I, um, readers of my manuscript often mentioned that um, you don't often see that in poetry published in North America. And um, it could be, it could be seen as redundant or, uh, um, I don't know what the right word is. I'm so sorry. Oh, that's okay. But, that's okay. but um, I was uh, that, of course, actually was very important to me. I was trying to make sort of like a constellation of ideas, and in a lot of ways, um, 
I'm really only writing about a dozen poems, but I just keep writing them over and over again. And I, I never come to this feeling that the theme or the idea is finished. I never, I can't think of any topic or any subject that I'm writing about where I say to myself, oh yeah, I did it, you know? That one's over with now, I can move on. It's never that way. I'm always sitting down to write the same poem I already wrote in a lot of ways. Well, it, it brings to mind, um, you know, somebody whose work is translated. Not mm. every translator is gonna translate it exactly the same way. Mm. So um, when you go back to your own work, you're bringing a whole new experience to it. So it's a retranslation, mm. but it becomes its own, it becomes its own piece and can stand on its own once you have gone back to it. Does it am I getting anywhere close to? Yeah, I think you are. You know, um, I recently read a, an inter a short interview with um, the Canadian poet Billy Ray Belcourt. He won the Griffin Prize last year, I think. And somebody asked him, like, what's so great about writing poems? Why do you write poetry? And he said, well, the good thing is, is that, um, there's no end to the ways I can say the same thing. Like I don't have to search around for like a new plot if it was a novel, or I don't have to look around for a whole new historical period to write about if it's nonfiction. Yeah. I can basically just have one or two top, uh, things to say, but I can say them forever. Mm. And that's the thing I love so much about writing poems and the practice of poetry, like having a profession of a professional practice of writing where it's something you do every day is that when it's poetry you don't have to panic so much even though write, writer's block can be daunting and, and can feel bad um, sooner or later you're going to remind yourself that you don't actually have to invent something new or come up with a new plot you can pretty much just write about the same thing you wrote about the day before and it will be different yeah, exactly. Well, and I think yeah. as a culture, the Western culture, especially now, novelty is so important. You have yes. to, you have to be unique, and you have to yeah. do something entirely different. And I think sometimes when you step that far away from the core of what you're trying to say and try to reinvent it, so nobody's ever said it this way before, um, you. You, you create um, an awkward space, and I think it loses some of the authenticity. And, and that's just my personal perspective, but I love the revisiting. Um, I've been used to that a little bit in my own writing, maybe not necessarily repeating lines, but revisiting the same scene, maybe looking at it sitting in a different scene. Um, yeah. Oh, I, yeah, I think. It's, well, yeah. yeah, well, it does, it does um, prove probably useful and fruitful to be a very um, inventive and avant-garde and speculative, especially when you have, um, there are sort of um, underlying political purposes or, um, yeah, yeah. so for example, it, it seemed it's it would be reason it's reasonable for uh, post-colonial writers 
writers that are talking about um, queer issues or um, trans issues to um, invent new forms for their work, or as they say, to decolonize language in their work, or to be very speculative and almost mad in the way that they concoct like their 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 page, yeah. and um, because their purposes are. Um, Part of the purpose is to to like um, break the canon and to to decompose the canon and all of that. And so, uh, thankfully, they are out there doing that, you know. But I must say, even though I do, I probably do have some of those political purposes. I'm always much more fascinated by looking backward than forward. It might just be a peculiar part of my personality. But um, I just find so much more richness in my ancestors than I do in um, the future. Yeah. I would I I would have to agree with you there. But as far as um, you know, the political purposes, I think don't you you almost end up in a, a whole different form of what's trying to be said. And so, in order for somebody to you said explode the cannon that's necessary and good mm. um it's not always easy for the um i don't want to say consumer but the reader the person who's trying to connect with that um but it requires so much more from us and mm -hmm. i think that's just as important too so um, yeah, it can seem very abrasive at times and incoherent, you know, mad almost, mm -hmm. you know, and, um, and sometimes it requires so much scholarship and, and work. I'm thinking, for example, of another um, very fine First Nations Canadian poet, um, Jordan Abel, who's, who, whose work at times is like impenetrable for me. But I'm so glad that he's doing that. And of course, um, the scholarship on his work is very important. And um, it's probably just because I'm not trying hard enough. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But, but um, you know, it takes all kinds, thankfully. Yeah. Well, and his voice, I'm sure, speaks very deeply to, to the space it needs to be met. Yes. Well, he's lauded. He's, he's one of the best. So clearly, yes. Yeah. So I it's feel working. like I'd be taking more notes when I talk to you. It's like, okay, I need to, I need to look up this person. <laughs> this person so. Well, I don't, mean to I don't mean to name drop, just to make it. Oh, no, it's, it's always clear. wonderful to hear the name of somebody else that, you know, I, I can explore or my listeners can explore. And we might not have ever heard those names before, so. Um, well, let me ask you this, because we've talked about your work and we've talked about others' work. Um, let's focus specifically on your work. And would you be willing to share a piece or two with us so that sure. listeners can hear your words and your own Yeah, words? that's so kind of you. Um, yeah, I'd love to read something. Yeah, well, feel free to pick what you'd like and, and share. Okay. I think there's such a gift. Um, for others to hear a poet recite their work in their own voice, because I think it adds just another layer of um, 
I, it sounds lighthearted, but joy and understanding to it. So I appreciate your willingness to share. Well, thank you. I, let me read something from Kabir's jacket, has a thousand pockets, if you don't mind. It's the first poem in the second section. It's called uh, Anti-Martyr. So I don't know if I should uh, um, introduce it in any way. Um, you can probably tell by the title that I'm trying to be contrarian. Mm -hmm. um, I suspect that um, all of your listeners, just like me, get fed a particular uh, version of what a Muslim is or um, what the Islamic world is like. Right. And uh, usually, of course, it's represented as almost entirely Arab, even though most Muslims are not Arabs. Okay. And almost always in, uh, described as um, either from the two main spheres, the Persian sphere or the um, Arabic sphere, even though most Muslims are neither of the two, they're living in the rest of the world. Okay. And then, of course, in popular news and in the media, we often see the Muslim as... Uh, the man in the street or the woman in the street filled with passion that the, uh, their voices are, are shrill and the blood is boiling and they're angry at something and they want to destroy something. And um, of course, most, most Muslims aren't like that at all. They're just regular people. Right, right. So um, I suppose that's the origin of this poem, which is anti-martyr. Ready. Okay. I don't have to love my lashes to be a prophet among my people. You'll never see me on fire or at the moment of impact. My glories aren't blazes. I won't drink blood or eat brain. My people don't ask for my head to be put in the lion's mouth. They don't mind if I lie in gutters, since dust ignores me. None of them want to see me in pieces or remembered as a wisp of smoke. I'm not to be kept in dungeons or away from my favorite food. I'm not the kind of prophet you worship or stone. Don't worry about the jokes I tell. I'm just trying to keep the birds happy. I, I do love hearing someone read work, um, and for me, I, it, it creates this experience where all my emotions, and I even get physically involved. I mean, I just was having all these feelings listening to you, and what a gift. Thank you. I mean, I, I, speaking of redundant, <laughs> I am, I keep thanking you, but um, I I read it. I read it a few times when I was going through the book, but never quite the same way as you did. And um, yeah, it just changes how I get to enjoy it now because I will hear your voice in the future. Mm. Well, it's kind of you to say, I must say that when I read this poem, um, it's, 
I guess like a feat. It's always in my set list. I almost always read it. But okay. when I do read it in public, I read it much slower and I have more pauses in the lines. And um, I try to, uh, I try to make it, I guess, as, um, I don't know what, uh, how to describe it, but, uh, um, you know, I like to have pauses so long that you can almost hear people squeak in their chairs at times. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but I, yeah, I couldn't well, bring myself to. comfortable with silence. Right. People are not comfortable with silence. And so um, the necessity of being quiet and still mm -hmm. people start to fight against that. So mm -hmm. probably a great tool when you read. Mm. I felt awkward about doing it uh, now, of course, because, um, People are just listening, so it doesn't wouldn't have that same sort of um, effect. But thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for sharing that. Um. So you're you're living in Monterey. Do you um get out and do readings? Are there places that people can find you if they're out in that neck of the woods, which they're lucky if they get a chance to hear you? Yeah. Well, there are a few readings in Monterey. Most of the, the good uh, um, old bookstores still have readings, like Bookshop Santa Cruz and Old Capital Books in Monterey is a great old bookstore. You could spend all day in there. And um, they have readings. I think I'm reading there probably in November. I can't remember the exact date or anything like that. It's um, held by the Monterey Bay Poetry Consortium. It's like a reading series. And next month, actually, I'm reading in Toronto. Oh, fantastic. The, yeah, at the Art Bar Poetry Reading Series. Okay. That's on October 15th, if anybody's out in TO. Yeah, get out there. Mm. Well, I'm, I'm going to tell everybody one more time about your book. It's Kabir's Jacket Has a Thousand Pockets. And it is by Morenzi House, is that correct? That's right. They're a Toronto publisher. They sort of um, they sort of are recognized as a publisher of writers of color. Okay. Yeah. Give them a little shout out. And then um, for those of my listeners out there who aren't familiar with you, share where we can find you online so they can learn sure. more about your work and that sort of thing. Well, I have to say, after the, if you don't mind my saying, after the Christchurch shooting, I had to get off of Facebook. So oh. I can't connect with everyone that way. But I am on Instagram, even though I know it's owned by Facebook. But there's very little politics on Instagram. Yeah. I haven't encountered much hate at all. That's uh, all just photos of cats, you know, and stuff, <laughs> stuff like that. I'll Anyways, <laughs> I'm on, I'm on Instagram by my own name, Ayazkarani, okay. and um, I have a website, but, but it sort of just floats out in space, and I have no idea what happens, you know, it's just out there, and my books are available at all good bookstores, Yeah. and it would be, you know, sorry. Are you going to tell us a little about your other book? Oh, yeah, I don't know if you've seen it. I have right not. Happy you are here. Yeah, it's called Happy You Are Here. It's published by the Wordworks. It came out in 2016. Okay. And, um, you know, I don't know what to say about it now. All I've been thinking about is Kabir's jacket for a year or two. 
Right. But uh, yeah. All right. Well, happy you are here by Ayaz Karani. Uh, and that's going to go on my want to read list, which is quite monumental. <laughs> sure. So, of course. Are the stacks on the floor that uh, I get to see. So, but um, well, thank you very much for spending a few moments chatting with me and well, thanks for having me. To get to know you, it has been a, a real pleasure. Well, hello to all your listeners. I'm a listener too. Uh, yeah, thanks for inviting me. Thank you to Licia Morelli for con connecting us. Yes. And uh, thanks for letting me read a poem. Yeah, thank you. Well, and I hope you'll come back and do it again sometime. I'm sure. Like Great. Thank you. I hope you'll take a few moments to find Ayaz on social media. And again, that is A-Y-A-Z, Pirani, P-I-R-A-N-I. And head over to his website, ayazpirani.com, to find out where he'll be performing next and to learn more about him and his writing. I also want to encourage you to find his book, Kabir's Jacket Has a Thousand Pockets, out now on Amazon and other book retailers. And remember, you can request your favorite titles at most small booksellers if it's not already on their shelves. So add this one to your bookshelf today. That's it for this week on Poet Kind. Thank you for spending some time with us today, and what a gift it is to sit with new people, to learn at the feet of someone whose words and work bring the world to us in a different way. And one last thank you to Ayaz. It was a joy to speak with you today. Please look for Poet Kind on Instagram and Twitter at Poet Kind Podcast, and make sure you say hi. You can always reach out to us via email at poetkindpodcast at gmail.com as well. Until next time, create, be, Live into what you are meant to do. And remember, we're always better together. Let's compare notes, not ourselves. <laughs>